If you're looking for the best that European football has to offer, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to On the Continent. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Nikki Bandini. On today's halftime in the Champions League quarterfinals show, on a snowy night in Munich, Noel, 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 Noel. How the champs slipped up against PSG. Do we think it's all over? Also, the jury's in on Zidane after making it look easy against Liverpool. Is he the real deal? And Juve, or Juve, finally turn up against Napoli. Are they back on track for the Serie A title? Well, if Nicky Bandini says they are, they are. So what's she going to say? What a week <laughs> in the Champions League. What a week. The return of the Champions League. A lot to talk about, Andy and Nicky. Should we start by talking about one of the matches that perhaps isn't going to be seen as a classic, and maybe a lot of people would have missed it, uh, which has uh, a Portuguese interest. So do you want to go first, Andy? You know what? Uh, the, the, the reaction in Portugal is one of the performance was perfect apart from the mistakes that lost the game, <laughs> which <laughs> I, 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 I think is, is kind of fair enough, really, because Porto played really well. I think a, a lot better than people um, expected they would be able to do against Chelsea. Chelsea may be, as I was saying on the ramble earlier, a little bit fragile after what happened against West Brom at the weekend. But Porto have already proved a lot, I, th I think, um, by getting past Juventus. And they proved something again, um, that they're not to be taken lightly, despite the fact, in budgetary terms, them being in a Champions League quarterfinal with Chelsea is something absolutely extraordinary. But of course, the most expensive thing in world football is finding that elite level striker at the end. I, I think that Porto performance, if you've got, say, a Cristiano Ronaldo or even an Andre Silva, at the, the sharp end of it is completely different. But I mean, a, a lot of the Champions League chat we're going to have is about taking chances or not taking chances. Because Nicky, it was, it was a really, really fantastic week of quarterfinals. Yeah. Oh God. There's too many connections pinging off in my head last week. I know you guys were talking about strikers last week and, and how important the absence of Robert Lewandowski would, would be, well, pretty flipping important in a game where, um, I think Alfonso Davis gave the, the tally of 31 chances for Bayern Munich. I'm not sure if that's an exact figure, but that's the one which they were giving. Um, they had, they had a lot of chances in that game and, and against, Paris Saint-Germain, which was just the most bonkers, entertaining game of Champions League knockout football. It was so much fun. But another conversation that's just fizzing in my head right now, because we just were having it off air before we started. We had a random, quite off-topic conversation about Game of Thrones and joking about this idea of, but then you just throw dragons in at the end and that just decides everything. Well, sometimes you just throw Neymar in there and you throw Mbappe in there like they're the dragons and they just torch everything, don't they? And that's kind of a little bit what this this tie was, or at least the first leg of this tie, was one team probably played better than the other overall, although neither of them seemed to put an awful lot of energy or effort into their defending. But one team had at least one 
pretty um, effective dragon to decide things. Not only that, clearly from the weather, winter is coming. (laughs) (laughs) It was, I mean, the the snow was really interesting to sort of um, touch on that quickly because you mentioned it. Like I was watching that first goal back and it's so early in the game and the snow really was coming down a lot at that moment. And look, there's always this sort of thing when you try to draw parallels between your own experiences in very, very amateur sport and then professional sport. But everyone knows that feeling if you've done a little bit of sport of you stepped out and it's really cold and you're not quite ready. And Manuel Neuer does not let in goals like that often. And Mm. I do think the snow might've had something to do with it. I do think being that cold, being that, um, impacted by the weather even though you're a professional even though you sort of set yourself the standards of not being I think in that moment it's just one tiny extra distraction in a game that can be decided so quickly by tiny distractions yeah talking of which Andy that that first goal that Nikki talks about Mbappe scored it it did seem at that point and we're talking about only three minutes in but as much as you can make judgments about these things it did seem as if the the visitors PSG wanted it more I'm not sure about that Dotton I mean I don't think it's really a, a case of desire necessarily um although when we're talking about desire i've never been so keen much as i love your singing for you not to massacre um sometimes it snows in april by prince which i thought was on the menu <laughs> I've, I've, I've i've got to admit um but uh, in in germany and um, in süddeutsche zeitung for example it's just been um framed really as a as a lack of killer instinct uh, and i think that's absolutely right i mean it seems too simple almost when we're sitting here, uh, Nikki and I, boiling it down to the absence of Lewandowski. It does make a huge difference. And we know, I, I think it's not just the absence of Lewandowski, but the late pullout of Serge Gnabry um, with coronavirus because he was rested at Leipzig at the weekend. Huge game because both of these teams had huge games to to set them up for this. Um, Bayern at Leipzig, um, Paris Saint-Germain uh, against Lille, which they performed in very, very poorly. And um, they were keeping back Gnabry on the bench at the weekend and replacing him with Chupamoting, thinking we're going to unleash him on, on, on Paris Saint-Germain. I can't help but think that would have made a difference as well. I mean, if you look at Gnabry's record for a goal-scoring record, um, when he takes a more central role for... Um, the German national team, and he does get to drift in field. Um, it's fantastic. He's, he's got a, a brilliant goal scoring record for, for Germany. So that, that was a, an, another huge blow. Of course, PSG were without some of their main players as well. And I felt that Marco Verratti would, his absence would maybe make as large a, a difference on this tie as the absence of Lewandowski, because he's been so important under Pochettino. He's been pushed up into that um, behind the striker spot, that sort of number 10 role to make up for that lack of creativity they've got in midfield. But you know what? Neymar did that really well from the off. Um, it's, it's Neymar's spot as well. Neymar is arguably that his best at, at number 10. So, you know, what, what, you do long-term, whether Verratti stays there, if Neymar stays fit in terms of that position in the, in, in the team, I, I think is 
is a question. But going back to your original point, Dotton, I do think that without trimming Bayern's contribution to the game down, because I thought, apart from taking those chances, they were pretty good. Or not taking those chances, I should say. Um, the, the, the fact is that PSG reminded us that you can be in a project for the money and still give everything. And that's something that I think people are sometimes not ready to accept. You know, you're either got your heart in it or you're a mercenary. I, I kind of think you can be both. And, you know, this set of expensively assembled players and this slightly uneven squad, I mean, again, I, d- I don't want to go too simplistically by saying they defended for their lives. They had an incredible goalkeeper and they made the most of Bayern's high line. But a lot of that, that is probably 75% of the story of the game. But how much they gave, I mean, Pochettino talked about that at length afterwards. And that is something that reflects very well on him, just as it reflects very well on the players. How did you enjoy the game, Nikki? Um, oh, I, I loved it. I loved watching it. Um, <laughs> there was a, an article um this morning in the Guardian, which is a great article, by the way. So I'm I'm never here to 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 say this in a mean way. But Jonathan Wilson wrote an article which was like, so that looked like a great game of European football, but and I was like, no, no buts. This was just great fun. Don't give me the buts. I don't want to. I don't want to to hear it. It's a great article. Do read it. Um, but um, no, it was it was a a hugely um fun game. I think there's so many um. There's so many interesting threads with um, this PSG team. I agree wholeheartedly with Andy. I think that just because it is a money-making operation in a grand sense doesn't mean that the individuals involved aren't still professionals who enjoy what they do and want to be successful at it. And I think that there's this sort of concept that um, Pochettino talked about quite a lot when he was at Tottenham, actually, this idea of universal energy and and things sort of all coming together and leading in certain directions. And he talked at one point quite a lot at Tottenham about how the season Tottenham finished second to Leicester, he felt like they were fighting against not just Leicester, but this overwhelming communal will that Leicester should win because everyone wanted that story to come to fruition. And how does that then square with being in charge of this team who a lot of people in the world outside of Paris, where of course they have um, got that that universal feeling, but elsewhere in the world, a lot of people look at it very cynically and go, oh, this is the worst form of modern football being all about money and not being about passion. And maybe even Pochettino is the missing ingredient to bring that together, to make it about passion. He certainly has a brand of football that I think suits that team really well because his football has always been about spreading the the pitch out and, and making the space and using positioning and quick interchange to create and then take advantage of those spaces. And when you have Neymar and Mbappe, who can both go half the pitch in the blink of an eye, your ability to do that, to make those spaces is so enhanced. And watching it in this game and it is only one game and look they could have lost this game and they could well lose the second leg it did feel like that moment of oh actually I see how this comes together in a really 
thrilling way, actually, um, a really, really exciting way between the Pochettino vision and the kinds of players he has at his disposal now. And, and the only meaningful way it can come together, Nicky, is in the Champions League, isn't it? Because, um, of course, football's about trophies and they'll be disappointed if they don't win Ligue 1 this season. But that match against Lille is not going to be talked about again in the near future despite the fact they were dire, despite the fact they didn't step up um, in a game that could have a, a huge um, say in the destiny of, of, of the league on title because it is all about this. And I think the range of performances you've got from Pochettino PSG already in the Champions League, he's only been there five minutes. We've had, we've had that 4-1 win away at Barcelona. We talked about the grit and the doggedness and that really was the take-home for... Um, French media and French observers from the second leg against Barcelona where they could have quite easily at least got into extra time there. I think because Barcelona was so good, particularly for the first hour, they almost sort of sidestepped the grisliness of the first half. French observers against Barcelona in that second leg and thought, well, you know, they, they, they did get stuck in in that second half. Of course, Kaylor Navas was praised to the hilt just as he was after last night, which is quite right. And I think, you know, when we have discussions about the best goalkeeper in the world, he never seems to be in it, which is kind of ridiculous, really, because he steps up at moments like this. He's a multiple Champions League winner. And, you know, he, he could be again this season. Who knows? But what I think is amazing about this tie as a whole, and we've been treated to a lot of great football this week, is that even when they always have this little box in Le Keep, the morning after a Champions League game, um, when they've got the match report, and it'll say, um, since uh, the European Cup started in 1957, um, this is the percentage of teams that have won after getting this first leg result. And I think it has, what, 97, 97% of teams who won the first leg 3-2 away have, have won the tie. And I remember reading that this morning and thinking, this is pointless. I, I, I don't know. I really don't know why you've put this on the page because whatever's happened in the past has no correlation to this situation. And I've never seen a team lose a Champions League game 3-2 at home and they risk losing it more. I mean, there, there was some chat on the English commentary of when they're 3-2 down. Is there a point when they decide, well, actually, we can come back from 3-2 away from home. We could go to Paris and win 2-0, 3-0. It's, it's, it's possible. But, but is there a point where they think we're going to risk avoiding extra damage? That never even crossed Bayern's minds. And in fact, the reason that PSG end up winning the game, the opportunity for Neymar to, uh, sorry, for Mbappe to break away and score that brilliant third goal is kind of created by Bayern going, we're not settling for 2-2. You know, even if that gives us a better chance in second, it's never in the back of their minds that what would be the most sensible option there? <laughs> and I think for, for a European football behemoth to think like that, it's, it's amazing. Well, but there's um there's another sort of parallel there that's just interesting, which is if you remember, that was what once was Sir Alex Ferguson's idea of how to win in in Europe was to mm. just outscore the opposition, just do more. And at some point, he had to wind it back, and and that's when he was successful. Having said that, Bayern won doing this last season, so it's not like they have any doubts about the idea that this can work. And I think, as we've already said, I think if they have 
Lewandowski. If they have their dragon, we probably have a different outcome. <laughs> so, since the European Cup was created in 1957, as it says in L'Equipe today, uh, with the right accent, do you not agree <laughs> then? Do you, do you not? I shouldn't have done that, I know. Do you, <laughs> do you not agree with Nikki then, Andy, that Bayern might overturn the deficit in the second leg? Oh, I think it's totally possible. That, that's why I'm not having the 97%. <laughs> in the words of Han Solo going into the asteroid field, don't tell me the odds because <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's not important in, in this situation. Of course, there's the carrot of Lewandowski as well because after he injured himself in, in the game against Andorra playing for Poland, he was out for a month. Well, Lewandowski being Lewandowski, he's like, right, no problem. I'll be back in two weeks. Um, I'm penciling in my little springtime trip to Paris already. I mean, that would be a twist in a tie full of them. Let's talk about another cracking match in the Champions League this week. Uh, Real Madrid made it look easy against Liverpool. Fair enough, Nicky. Liverpool have got their problems domestically. They're not the Liverpool that were the champions last season, clearly. But to make it look that easy, is it time for us to to start thinking about the the power behind the engine room of uh, Real Madrid, i.e. Zinedine Zidane, once upon a time the world's greatest footballer, but he hasn't managed to keep that kind of level of status up as a coach, has it? Well, I, I, I almost don't see what there would be that much to, to, to knock his status as a coach. I think there was this perception when Zidane first walked in and goes and wins the Champions League right away that it's just always so easy to look at Real Madrid and go, well, anyone could do that. And I think that perhaps with my... Um, uh, Italian focus on. I look at it and look at what's happening with Pirlo at Juventus. I know we're going to talk about that later, so not to get into it. But I think, well, obviously, not anyone can walk into these jobs and and do them to the level of of winning things. I think Zidane stepped into that role very confidently. He'd earned it in at least some sense by by working with the the, the second team first. But I think um, I think. It's definitely um, a remarkable job that he's doing right now, not just in drawing the best of some players who I think a lot of people were writing off earlier in the season. I think there was a real sense of this is the end of Modric. This is the end of um, even like Sergio Ramos, like the end of this era of a certain Madrid. Drawing the best from them, but also finally getting the value that Madrid need to be getting out of a player like Vinicius at a time when there isn't going to be the opportunity perhaps to spend as freely in the near future as they have been used to doing in times of trouble. Yeah, Vinicius was amazing in this match, Andy. Um, and you can't write off uh, Modric because he was a playmaker and uh, had at least one assist. But the problem seems to be that 
well, I don't know. In the past, I've often sort of wondered whether great footballers, really, really, really top, top, top footballers make great coaches. There's a couple of examples where they do, but often enough, more than likely, uh, we're faced with um, also rounds in the managerial stakes when it comes to great footballers. Uh, Wayne Rooney might be finding that out at the moment, for example. But with Zidane, there was an extra level, I think, of... uh, superhero about him as a footballer and he goes to Real Madrid and you think well he's got to be able to keep that sort of super level up so even when his team walk all over Liverpool as they did this week you're still like nah, that's it Dan you know I'm not sure if he's what he's made out to be what do you have to do then to convince people that he's the Real deal and you saw what I did there <laughs> I don't think he especially cares about that perception to be honest Dotton if he does he does it like he does everything else very very privately and I think the reason that Zidane is uh, not heralded as one of the greatest coaches is maybe threefold I think firstly he's someone who unlike 95% possibly more of other coaches is not one to talk at length about his own philosophy, which people love to hear. And managers love to hear themselves say, I think, talking about their philosophy, their vision of the game. And he, he, he doesn't talk about that, just the same as he doesn't talk about anything else. And he never did while he was a player. You know, he's very, very taciturn character. I think the other thing is the fact that it's at Real Madrid. Now, he talked about him coming to Real Madrid. As a coach, he was already there, I think, is is, is probably the point. The fact that he kind of stepped up as the most glamorous caretaker ever, initially. We reacquainted ourselves with the aura afterwards. But the fact that he's part of the furniture there, through his years as a player, through his um, time working with Castilla, the B team, that's really important to the way that he was able to adapt and be that sort of steady influence. I think the third reason that people maybe put a little question mark over Zidane is because he doesn't feel like a builder of great teams. Firstly, because he's squeezing a little bit more out of a golden generation of Real Madrid players. And secondly, if he ends up with this fourth European Cup... I'm I'm still not convinced that people look back and go, here's one of the greatest coaches because of the manner in which they've won them. Now, I suspect that dissipates with time because people look at the trophies rather than the detail when you're 10, 15, 20 years down the line. Um, because I think, say if you look at, I don't know, Bayern winning three times in the 70s, um, People now say that Bayern team that won three times in the 70s. They don't say that Bayern team that were quite lucky to beat Leeds in Paris. They don't say that Bayern team that were the beneficiary of the um, square goalposts at Hampden Park when they played St Etienne. Just like they won't say that Real Madrid team that um, were absolutely flamed at the Bernabeu and saved by Cristiano Ronaldo penalty against Juventus in the Buffon moment there, that team, um, you know, that that really were out on their feet 
against Atletico in 2016, and if Atletico had dared be a little bit more front foot, then that they would have they would have gone on to win the game. And you know that that is football, really, isn't it? You know, I, I think the detail fades as as time goes on. But if we look at the detail of this, it, what he did against Liverpool is actually a contradiction to all of that, I think, because. I mean, Liverpool weren't at their best. And I do think in other situations that Kroos, Modric, Casemiro midfield is under pressure against a fully ready Liverpool team that are more athletic than them, that don't give them space. As it was, they gave them all the space they wanted. But when we're talking about Zidane, not just as aura, not just as man manager, but as actual coach, the first thing he did brilliantly against Liverpool, he picked the right team. He picked exactly the right team to do what they needed to do. And you said it, in picking Vinicius, in sticking with Asensio, who'd had a good game at the weekend, playing a slightly different role against Abar, who resisted the temptation to keep three at the back, even after they lost Varane with coronavirus, and resisted the temptation to have Marcelo as wing-back, which he was wondering out loud in the pre-match press conference should I do that I really love Marcelo (laughs) and and he resisted that temptation to to do that that's the biggest reveal you will ever get from Zidane so from the team he picked to the way they went about it in the first half to the way that Kroos dropped off and looked for Vinicius's run and they sought to isolate Alexander-Arnold to the way which they retook control in the second half after Liverpool came out quite strongly, I thought, in the first 10 or 15 minutes of that. He played it absolutely perfectly. He would never say this for himself, of course, but, I mean, that all spoke for him. Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a valid point about Liverpool not being at their best. And I did think the space and time that Cruz had to, to pick out some of those long passes over the top that were so effective with Vinicius running onto them certainly is something that um, you would think a, a, a better Liverpool, a sharper Liverpool would have closed down more effectively. I do think it's worth sort of also keeping into context if you want to sort of talk about why people have been sceptical. They've had some really bad games this season as well. And I think that during the group stage, when they failed to beat, not just failed to beat, lost, sorry, to Shakhtar Donetsk twice, um, it felt like such a different moment in the team's trajectory. It felt like such a different path that Real Madrid were on. And look, in the end, this is football. We do react to results. And when the, the facts change, the the narrative changes. And, and the narrative right now looks a lot rosier than it did back then. But I I do still always just on this topic come back to that first thought, which is if winning the European Cup like isn't enough to validate you, what's going to validate you? There's nothing <laughs> you can do. There's nothing you can do that's going to stop people from doubting you if if winning the biggest trophy that you can win isn't going to do it. Yeah, uh, Nikki makes a point actually there that just struck me during the game. <clears throat> to a certain extent, Real Madrid were playing the long ball in terms of their goals, and you think, oh, God, not that old long ball, but it was effective. And obviously, uh, Liverpool, a team of much younger players on the whole, weren't able to deal with it, as you said a moment or two ago, Andy. 
I wonder, though, whether Real Madrid's issue here is the changing of the guard, you know, whether Zinedine Zidane is going to turn out to be the um, French stroke Spanish equivalent of Alan Hansen and say, well, you don't win anything with kids, do you? If he's thinking out loud in a press conference. At some point, though, they're going to have to get rid of that midfield in particular. They're going to have to get rid of people like Sergio Ramos, as much as he's a legend. He's still got a lot in him. But to keep Real Madrid up to the level that you're expecting, they're going to have to do that. And I can't see how they're going to trans um, or move on from what is essentially the the backbone of their team all, all at once. It's going to be a gradual process. And I can't quite see that beginning to happen at Real Madrid. I think he might come unstuck, you know. 100% Dotton. And I think the big criticism of... Zidane in his first spell and in his second spell is those players really Asensio and Vinicius should have been doing this every week for the past two years but they haven't been and as the coach of course they've got to take responsibility as, as individuals and as part of a collective but he's he's not done that and he's not been able to I don't, really the only young players who he's really assimilated Furlan Mendy who's been brilliant since he's arrived from, from Lyon and Federico Valverde, who he considered not fit enough to break the Holy Trinity in midfield for this. And, you know, he made the right call, I think. Um, and Valverde has basically banged down his door with his, his performances. But if you think of some of the other young players, like who they've bought and who haven't worked out um, now some of them you might feel are, are not really good enough for Real Madrid but the money they've spent on Eden Militao who's played well I thought on, on, on Tuesday but has really had a minimal impact um, you look at Odria Zola um, you look at um, Marcos Llorente who they thought he would bring through to replace Casemiro and is now tearing up trees for Atletico Madrid across the city in a completely different situation Th- these are all at least micro failures of of Zidane's management. Um, But you're right that they've almost a night like this is putting off the inevitably even more because if you can turn around and say, well, you know what? Kroos, Modric and and Casimiro can still do it together. So let's not break them up. Let's stick with them. Let's ride this wagon till the wheels fall off. And I think maybe the biggest favour that fate has done him this week is the injury to Sergio Ramos, who, uh, as we know, is a huge story in Spain because he came on for the last four minutes of that game against Kosovo, got himself injured in the warm down, which plays really badly for him as he's pitching for a new contract, having just turned 35. But then he's there in the stadium looking the coolest guy in Valdebebas, but not actually at the heart of it. And, you know, they're saying now, you know, after they've associated previous failures with in the Champions League, particularly at home, with having no Sergio Ramos. Against Manchester City last year, they went out with no Sergio Ramos. Um, when he got himself deliberately booked in Amsterdam at the end of that win against Ajax, and then they got absolutely hammered in the return while he was filming his documentary in, in, in one of the presidential boxes. All those play into the myth of we can't do it without Sergio Ramos. And maybe against Liverpool, they've slightly changed the narrative. 
Ugo ancora più bello rispetto a quello allo Zenit. Perde un po' il tempo Doni per staccare, ma la palla è fantastica, calciata con il, il giustamente forte a girare tutta la barriera. Okay, Nicky, should we talk about the Italian Zinedine Zidane? Great player, went on to coach a great team. It's not quite working out for him, Andrea Pirlo, obviously. Although it does seem as if Juve are back with a win against Napoli. Are they really back? I think um, that really would be reacting too much to one result. It was a really, really big result. Um, it's not um, the big result that perhaps Juventus fans were hoping it would be that it could have been if some previous results hadn't been so bad where you could win this game and say, right, we're, we're back in the title hunt, we're right in the thick of it. Because Juventus are still 12 points behind Inter at the top of Serie A. There are now nine games left to go. One of those is against Inter. But even if Juventus win every game now, until the end of the season, including that game against Inter, you're still relying on Inter to drop nine points in their remaining nine games. And Inter have won 10 in a row. So it's not feeling all that likely that even if you're perfect, you're going to cross that line. And and frankly, Juventus is still a long way from perfect. This was a good, a really good performance. One of their best performances in, in some time. And there's lots of Um, fascinating things to pick out of that not limited to the fact that the player who scored their second goal and a brilliant goal and looked brilliant coming off the bench was Paolo Dybala who's missed a lot of this season and hasn't when he has been present always looked like he has the same um, role and prominence under Pirlo that he had under Maurizio Sarri where if you remember just last season um, Dybala was actually named as Serie A's MVP, so ahead of Ronaldo even. But I do think this team is facing up to, in a sense, a very similar problem to Madrid because it's not quite as much old guard as at Madrid, although you have some of the old Madrid um, old guard imported in the form of Ronaldo. There is definitely now... um, a moment that Juventus are going through where they're trying to transition to a younger team. They're trying to start something new. But most of all, because of Ronaldo, there's also Chiellini, there's also Bonucci, but he's still got a bit of time left. Especially because of Ronaldo, you are trying to work out, can we still make the most of this superstar while he's here? Can we still, I mean, really win that in Champions League, which we've gone steadily backwards in while we still have another year of this guy on contract and that question does not come close to going away with a win over Napoli the win over Napoli is huge for the league standings not because of the league title actually if Napoli had won the game they would have knocked Juventus out of the top four now that really would have been monumentally bad for Juventus because about a quarter of their turnover comes from the Champions League but the win is is good within proportion, is what I'm trying to say. Like, it's a really good win, an important win, a good performance. But the bigger questions hanging over this club pretty much all remain. I, I know the Ronaldo question's not going away, Nicky, but I did want to talk about um, 
Federico Chiesa because um, another really good game from him, another really good game from him in a big game. And I, I put it out on Twitter during the game, actually, saying, look, hands up if you thought Chiesa was nice to have rather than essential when he signed for Juventus at the start of the season because clearly he's proved himself a, a quality player over over a few years um, at Fiorentina. Um, if, I think maybe there's a bit of confirmation bias with what happened to Bernadeschi, an outstanding player for Fiorentina, but only ever really a bit part player um, for, for Juventus. I looked at Chiesa and especially when I remember like in the first part of the season when they played a Champions League game at Dinamo Kiev and he was played by Pirlo in a lineup with um, Dybala and with Ramsey as well. And it, it didn't really work because they're all really wanting to attack the same sort of space. But what amazed me about that is Chiesa kind of readjusted in that game and thought right okay I've got to figure out a way to make this work but there's no shine retiring about it there's no I'm a first year player at Juventus who needs to prove myself he not only has the talent to grab big games he has the guts to grab big games and you know there's maybe an argument that he's turning into their key player or he will turn into their key player going forward did you imagine him having this much impact in his first season and is part of it conditioned by the fact that Juventus are not at their best on the other hand um I I'm absolutely in that camp they should be putting their hand up and saying I thought this was a luxury signing I felt like it was a signing that Juventus felt bullied is the wrong word but I can't think of a better one like they felt pushed to make it sooner than they wanted to. I think, frankly, they wanted to bring Kiesa in another year down the line, but the player wanted to do it now and was not patient about it. And so Juventus thought, well, this is a player we want for the long term, so let's make it happen. I had higher expectations, honestly, just being totally honest about my own analysis. Um, I thought Kulisevsky was going to have a bigger impact this season. It's gone completely the opposite direction, where Kulisevsky has been a bit of a disappointment, um, but Kiesa has been fantastic and I think this actually comes to a really interesting discourse around Pirlo and, and who he is as a manager because you touched on it just there some of his lineups are interesting tactically <laughs> seem very imbalanced at times I think he's got better in that area but certainly early in the season some of the team selections seemed borderline um, bonkers with the amount of attacking players you were trying to get into the team. But if you listen to how he talks about how he conceives football teams, Pirlo talks over and over again about not positions, but roles. He has roles that he sees players um, being in and Kikeza he sees in this role of being um, a line breaker, of being someone who will be direct and, and get on the ball and, 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 be incisive, basically. And I think that what this system has done, this idea of not positions, but roles, it has empowered players who are exactly as you just defined it, bolder in their personality. Players who feel willing to say, all right, then I'll do what I think is right. I think are hugely empowered in this system. And those are the ones who have done 
the best underpiller. And I think Kirza is example number one. And another example who I think is lesser in terms of his talent, but who has, I think, certainly shone much more than people expected to, is Weston McKenney. And I think that Weston McKenney, I'm still not sure about him as a all-around footballer, about his discipline, about his ability to be, he's certainly a good footballer, but a really sort of top-level technical footballer. But I think he's this great, what Americans would call like a sandlot player, like a player who would just take charge in a situation that's a bit chaotic, that's in a situation that, right, I'm just going to go. And I think that Chiesa has been like a higher level version of that. I think he's actually technically exceptional. I think he's maturing and developing at a level beyond what I thought of him, not just for Juventus, but also the national team. And that's really exciting to me as an Italian wanting him to be successful. But I do think there's something really core in that nature of Pirlo's management style. And perhaps it's a reflection of him as a player as well, that he felt most comfortable, most able to produce his best under managers who said, look, you're Andrea Pirlo, go do Andrea Pirlo on the pitch and things will work out. Uh, Juve are going to end the season not winning the trophies they really want to win. (laughs) So if you compare them to Napoli, who haven't had a bad season, Napoli, have they? If you compare them to Napoli, who would feel that this season uh, was better? The Napoli or Juve, do you think? Napoli have had a very disappointing season as well, to be honest with you. Juventus were expected to compete for the title and, and that um, title challenge is essentially evaporated. Um, they were expected to get to at least the quarterfinals in the Champions League and, and the owners certainly want to win it and that didn't happen. Um, Napoli, the, the expectation is not as high, but certainly Napoli expect to be in the top four and they spend enough to be in the top four. I think they have the third highest wage bill in Serie A at the moment. So they should be in the top four and they aren't right now. They came into this game on a run of better form. They've been winning games again lately. And part of that comes down to having everyone available. There's been a lot of time this season when Dries Mertens has been out with a complicated ankle problem that seems to keep coming back. Victor Ossiman, who was the club's record signing in, in the summer, um, he has not played nearly as many games as everyone wanted him to. And you saw the impact of that against Juventus because he came off the bench and won a penalty. But there's bigger issues at Napoli. There's been an atmosphere which just seems to keep coming back around. Um, last season... Under Carlo Ancelotti, there was the infamous mutiny um, when um, the owner, De Laurentiis, tried to send the team off to a punitive training camp and players said no. Then Gattuso comes in and seemingly rides the ship a little bit, but he got very frustrated in the winter about rumours of a replacement coming in for him and the club not supporting him and saying, no, this isn't happening. And now the club has been on a long press silence, which has gone for weeks and weeks and weeks, not giving press conferences. But the expectation is that Gattuso won't be there next season. So they've had their own 
underlying problems going back for really, it feels like almost two years now that haven't been resolved. Talent-wise, player for player, they should be ahead of, for instance, a team like Atalanta. They should be competing with those teams to be in the top four. Pure talent-wise, they should probably be ahead of Milan, but they haven't been and they were getting back to that point. So losing this game in that hunt for the top four, which is going to go down to the wire, the title race isn't, but the top four race is really tight right now. It's certainly a setback to lose this one against Juventus. So it's that time when we ask both of you, of you to recommend a game of the week that we can enjoy uh, this weekend. It's going to be a hard one to follow uh, Bayern versus PSG as the game of the week. Uh, Andy, have you got one? Uh, you know what? I've got more than one. <laughs> there was too much fun last week. There's too much fun this week as as well. Of course, everyone should be watching El Clasico on Saturday night. Um, Real Madrid at home against Barcelona and it is set up perfectly um, both with Atletico losing um, David's game of the week last weekend as Sevilla as he predicted they they would and um, so Barcelona won against Valladolid closed the gap at the top to one point Real Madrid just behind both of them looking in very different ways in very good nick but I know you're going to be watching that already so I'm my game of the week is going to be I want to see how Atletico recover they're going back to Seville they're away at Betis on Sunday night by which point they might not be top um, depending on how the Clasico result goes Um, Betis have improved recently under Manuel Pellegrini and Two big, big absences for Atletico. No Luis Suarez, who was banned anyway, um, but has has done um, himself a muscle injury. So he's going to be out for three weeks um, in training this week. And also Marcos Llorente, who, as I've said on here time and time again, has been Atletico's best player over the last 12 months. So if they're going to start digging it out, as their captain, Koke, keeps saying they're going to do, well, they're going to do it the hard way. So, Andy's gone with Spain. What about you, Nikki? Can I be like peak hipster this week? Can I can I give you something a bit silly? Oh yeah. Because the Dude. real answer is the Clasico, right? Like go watch the Clasico, obviously, but on a different time. And um, there's not like a. I always, of course, you bring me on here every few weeks. I have to give you something Italian because no one else is doing it. So I have to come on here and give you something <laughs> Italian. There isn't like a great top of the table clash this week so I'm going to give you right at the other end of the table I'm going to give you bottom of the table Crotone who are playing against Spezia two newly promoted teams Crotone have been disastrously bad for most of this season really bad and a few weeks ago they brought in this manager Serse Cosmi who is if you watched football back in the early 2000s you might remember him he was the manager of Perugia in the era of Luciano Gauci, the era of signing Sadi Gaddafi and um, threatening to fire on, uh, oh, threatening to fire on, I can't remember his full name, I'm going blank on his full name, which is awful, uh, the Korean player who scored against Italy at the World Cup. And he was the manager and he was this ridiculous, always bulging out of these fitted suits, but wearing a baseball cap at the same time, manager who'd been pulled up from lower divisions, um, out of nowhere to take this job, larger than life character, 
wrote a biography in which he talked about how in one of his previous jobs, he used to show his team porn on the way to games as a way to get them motivated. He's this really out there character who disappeared for 20 years and now has suddenly resurfaced at Crotone. Bottom of the league, they've brought him in. And since he's come back, and I was one of the people who poured scorn on this appointment, it seemed like a really odd appointment. Since he's come back, they've only won once, but they have played some of the most stupidly entertaining football in Serie A. They've had comebacks that fell apart with late goals against Lazio. Against Napoli, they were down 3-1, came back to 3-3, ended up losing 4-3. They have this Nigerian forward, Simi, who has scored eight goals in, in his last five games, more than anyone else in Europe's top five leagues up to that point. He'd scored seven before all season. And he's this huge, lanky, he's almost two metres tall. He's really tall, awkward looking player who then just scores bicycle kicks out of nowhere and does ridiculous things. They're just so much fun to watch at the moment. And they're playing in Spezia, so it's a relegation battle. It's not the game of the week. The game of the week is the Classico. Of course it is. But if you're looking for something to watch on Saturday at, um, I think it's 2pm UK time, adjust for your relevant local time zone, that will be a, an entertaining game. I'm willing to, to, to bet on that one. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.